Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise this evening for um, the ability to gather together here. We ask you to please send your Holy Spirit upon us. Please be upon our minds and our hearts and enlighten us as to the, uh, the true meaning of baptism. For those who are on the journey uh, to the Easter Vigil who have not received baptism yet, please stir up within their souls a great longing for the mystery of baptism and the supernatural life that accompanies it. We pray this as we pray together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So uh, thanks for letting me join you all this evening. Father Brian and, and his companion priests are on their annual um, kind of getaway for spiritual renewal and recreation. So please pray for them. Uh, tonight, and I'm with you to uh, talk a little bit on, about baptism. Um, as far as like why I'm even here, I'm director of faith formation for Father Brian. So um, I direct different adult faith programs and small groups, young adult candlelight mass, senior mass and luncheon, different retreats and conferences throughout the year. Uh, a lot of what I do is just kind of clear the stage and do a lot of background work with Maria and Sarah and some of the other workers uh, in the church and just kind of clear the stage so that Father Brian can come on and speak his wisdom uh, and, and his life. So it's a great job. This is my seventh year, actually. And before Father Brian was here, I used to teach RCIA. Uh, but I, it was kind of sad for me because I loved RCIA, but it was even greater because Father Brian, as a priest, that's his thing, actually. He, he loves RCIA, so obviously as the obliging employee, I was like, yeah, of course. Um, but it's certainly nice to teach every once in a while um, when, when Father's gone. Uh, tonight, what I want to do is just go over kind of a basic topic, I think, for a lot of us. But it's one of those topics, as a Catholic, that um, you can never learn enough about. And so whether you are in RCIA and, and going to become Catholic... Uh, if you're going to be baptized or if you're already baptized and uh, will be received into full communion, you know, or if you're baptized as an infant like me and you didn't even know, uh, well, welcome. Uh, you can always learn something more about baptism. That's the exciting thing. Um, tonight, what I want to do is just make this, just make sure it works here first. It does. I want to go over uh, baptism in kind of three categories. Do we have any teachers here? Public, private? Um, I used to teach high school for three years and I, I realized I like to kind of think and then teach in threes. So the three main points for tonight are gonna be baptism as the sacrament of new creation. new identity, 
and new life. And there's a little bit of a qualifier there with life. It's not just any life, it's actually supernatural life. You're like, what does that mean? Well, we'll get into it. Um, first, what I want to do is, I want to begin with a personal story, actually. And I'm going to throw in some personal stories. I think Father Brian's good at doing that, uh, making it concrete and personal um, tonight. So, so I kind of want to spice it, you know, the, the topic of baptism with some personal stories. The first one, actually, uh, although it's a bit intense, uh, has to do with my dad. But it does have to do with baptism because uh, one of the things I love about the Catholic faith is how absolutely practical it is. And for those of you who have been through near-death experiences, you know what I'm talking about. No one is better in the world, I feel like, at being there for uh, people when at the beginning of life and at the end of life than the Catholic Church. And I was 21 uh, many, many moons ago. And um, let me just find the passage here. I was 21, and I was sitting next to my father on uh, Concord, New Hampshire, and he was on his deathbed. And I knew that he had about a few days left, maybe a week. And I had recently gotten into my Catholic faith. Um, going back a step further, I was a super cradle Catholic for many years of my life and kind of could, couldn't stand going to Mass. It wasn't until high school when a few of my sports friends and I uh, went to uh, a conference and there were some challenging things that were suggested about faith that I took personally that caused me to step more into my life of faith. I'd never have one, had one. Then when I get to college, I'm surrounded by, it was a public university in the Midwest, and I'm surrounded by a lot of Protestants. So they're like, you're Catholic, right? And I said, yeah. And they're like, well, what about the Pope? And what about Mary? And what about the sacraments? And don't you all feel like you earn your way into heaven? And don't, aren't Catholics all about works, you know, not grace? And... Um, it, it challenged me. I was like, okay, I got to learn more about my faith. Like, I love Christ, but I need to learn more about the Catholic faith. And so I did. And so here I am as a sophomore, and I was, I was really nerdy in college. I, I mean, I, well, always, but like especially in college, because I would leave my classes, and I'd go back to the dorm room, and I would do nerdy things like read the catechism and read the Bible and go on the websites to find answers to stuff that I wanted to know information about. And so I'd, I'd purchase a catechism, and by the way, everyone should purchase a catechism if you haven't already. It's a lot simpler, actually, than it seems. It seems really intimidating and big, which it is. It's actually quite simple if you just kind of take it slowly. So here I am on my dad's deathbed. And so I look into the glossary like a good Catholic does. Like, why well, look in the Bible? Let's look in the catechism. <laughs> no, it's a bit of a joke. You want, you want to have both. Actually, scripture a lot more. But I was like, I had my catechism in. So I look under like death. Again, intense story. And I just, it says, okay, paragraph 1010, 
the Christian meaning of death. And it talks about baptism. And that's why I wanted to begin with this. It, it says, paragraph 1010, write this down if you can. CCC, Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1010. Um, by the way, church documents are always numbered by paragraphs, not by page number, because they're, uh, whenever local countries translate it, it's going to go through hundreds of different translations. So it would get lost in the shuffle if it was by page number. It's always by paragraph number. So paragraph 1010, speaking of the meaning of Christian death, says, because of Christ, Christian death has a positive meaning. And I remember that stuck out to me. Again, uh, Concord, New Hampshire, early May. It's, and it quotes St. Paul who says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. What is essentially new about Christian death is this. Through baptism, the Christian has already died with Christ sacramentally in order to live a new life. And if we die in Christ's grace, Physical death completes this dying with Christ and so completes our incorporation into him in his redeeming act. That's a little heady. But here what I was learning at 21 was that my father, who was in his last days, who was an incredibly loving father to me, who would kind of experience the faith a little bit late himself in life, had died spiritually in baptism when he was so young. And he was actually undergoing a physical death as well. And I can tell you that that brought a lot of consolation for me at the time. It still does. And then it, it's something, I, I have to quote this because it's so incredible. And again, this is all tied back to baptism, but they quote in the catechism, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who in 107 AD was charged uh, for uh, blasphemy against the Roman emperor, and he was brought to Rome to be martyred. He was one of the bishops. He gives us, Father Brian's quoted him a lot in class, because he writes the first solid, uh, solid writings on the Eucharist. Um, he's kind of like a Catholic early church father, you could say. But um, St. Ignatius of Antioch writes this on the way to being martyred, and he knew he was going to be martyred. And he says, it is better for me to die in Christ Jesus than to reign over the ends of the earth. Him it is I seek, who died for us. Him it is I desire, who rose for us. I am on the point of giving birth. Let me receive pure light. When I shall have arrived there, then shall I be a man. Um, the first thing I want to say about baptism is that it's utterly practical. It, it's the sacrament of new life through death, though, through spiritual death. Um, and we're, gonna, we're going to get into exactly how and why that is. Um, but really, aside from um, the, the fact that the church is so good at, at you know, uh, beginning of life and end of life mysteries, there's also the question, well, what about like during, during life, like life itself? And that's where this thing comes in, which we're going to talk about. This is all just by way of introduction, of course. It's supernatural life. And if you forget everything that I go over tonight, 
what I want you to remember, and I think which is actually the most practical, is that baptism is the gateway to supernatural life. And that's what each one of us is called to in this room. We're gonna, we're gonna make that more practical because unfortunately that's left way up in the clouds too often, this, this topic, supernatural life. So baptism is the gateway to supernatural life. Um, and just a story to, to kind of get into this proper, raise your hand if you've heard of Pope John Paul II. Does anyone remember when he died? Okay. Um, he will probably go down as a doctor of the church. Uh, there's only 33. He'll probably be the 34th, as he should be. He's a big deal. And the, there's a story that illustrates supernatural life that is a true story that comes from an account that someone makes, um, something that happened when he, when he was pope. There was a priest, I actually forget what country, it could have been Germany. <clears throat> and there was a priest, this is a true story, the priest was kind of, kind of like Father Brian. He was a local parish priest and just was kind of humbly going about doing his thing. But he had a brother priest, a priest friend, who was really struggling. And uh, this priest was actually beginning to kind of doubt certain things and just really struggling. And he was super downtrodden. He was super embarrassed that he was a priest, but he was having these struggles with faith Morally, he wasn't kind of walking the tightrope like he knew he needed to. Um, nothing super egregious, but like he was really ashamed of just kind of his spirit because of his doubt. And his uh, good friend writes a letter to the Pope. And I don't know if you know this, but each Pope is a little bit different, but Pope John Paul II would have certain nuns that would receive all of his mail. Can you imagine how much mail the Pope gets? And they knew to flag certain letters and to get in touch with him personally, they would contact his personal secretary, who would then contact the Holy Father, and the Holy Father would read it himself. And he had kind of this whole method of how that would get uh, discerned, what letters to read. There's one letter that the sisters mark of a priest friend writing about, you know, this other struggling priest. So the Holy Father invites both of these priests to the Vatican to have lunch one afternoon. And that'd be pretty cool. I mean, I'd... No, I'd love to go to that. That'd be cool. Uh, and, and so they go, and they, uh, the way the story goes, they have a, a great lunch. They talk about some basic stuff, some superficial cultural things, and then um, they kind of get into a little bit more of what is really plaguing this priest who's struggling. And they get into it, they uncover the meat. Of course, we don't know the details, but they started to get into it. And then at one point, Pope John Paul II asks the solid priest, if you will, to step out of the room. The Holy Father wanted to talk to this struggling priest by himself, so he does. And they have a heart-to-heart -heart meeting. They don't know exactly how long it went for, but for some time. Can you imagine just a priest who's struggling with doubt talking to the Pope himself? And they got into it, and at one point the Pope turns to the priest and asks him if he could hear his confession. And so the Holy Father, John Paul II, gives his confession to this priest who's struggling with faith. And the story goes that just the priest obviously was very renewed in spirit. We don't know what happened to him after this, but certainly we hope that uh, things were better for him. 
What I want to propose to you, and we're going to get into this here in just a second, is that what the Holy Father did right there is not an act of natural, what we would call uh, bios in the Greek, or biological life. Like the way all of us kind of uh, live day-to-day life. C.S. Lewis called it bios. It's just normal, natural, everyday life. And it's good. It's very good. What I want to propose to you is that Pope John Paul II was acting out of what he himself knew quite well, which is called supernatural life, or what C.S. Lewis called Zoe. It's a life that is built on a natural life, but it's quite literally above or beyond. And that is nothing less than what Christ, the Lord himself, calls us to. And I think that really illustrates this point right here. The telltale sign of supernatural life is that you, like, you, couldn't, you couldn't make it up. Like that story, an, uh, the best author in the world would have a hard time making that up, how beautiful that is. Uh, and we're going to get into that in just a second. Really, that's, that's the goal of, of baptism here on earth and then forever in heaven. Uh, just some, some basics here from a scriptural point of view. What are the types of baptism in the Old Testament? Just let's go through this relatively quickly. Because, of course, as Catholics, we are based in Scripture. Not just tradition alone, but Scripture and tradition. So what are the types of baptism? You know, every sacrament in the New Covenant is going to have a type or kind of a foreshadow in the Old. And this is really cool because a lot of times Protestants don't understand this. Like, well, this this all comes out of nowhere. Um... We'll talk about why that's not true, actually. First things first. First book in the Bible is Genesis. And what hovered over, uh, the spirit hovered over what? The waters. So we see waters in the first creation, Adam and Eve. And in the baptismal rite, the next time you go to a baptism of a niece or a nephew, whoever, you're going to hear the priest go through this long prayer of all the foreshadowing in the Old Testament that were types to come of the New Testament that are fulfilled in baptism. The next one had to do with the guy um, who, there was a a terrible movie made a few years ago about this guy who's a major uh, figure in the Old Testament and he had to build something. Noah. Noah. What saved his family? Well, the ship did, but why did he need the ship? Because of the, the floodwaters, right? So, creation, Noah. What I like to do, by the way, is write words. For some reason, that's how I think. So every word that I write down here is just going to be important. Maybe write it down, go home, Google it, look it up in your Bible, your catechism. Um, first type is creation. Second type is Noah. But what is kind of the quintessential type in the Old Testament of the sacrament of baptism. So Noah's family was saved through the waters of the flood, or regeneration. And then uh, who was fleeing the Egyptians? Moses. Okay, so the Red Sea. And 
The first letter of St. Peter in the New Testament, it says, as the Red Sea saved the folks in the Old Testament, so baptism now saves you. But the first one was in Exodus from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And it was through the Red Sea that they were saved. And so the New Testament authors are going to hearken back to that story for how Christ ushers in the new exodus through the, wa- through the waters of baptism. You see how that happens? In the Old Testament, the Red Sea, the New Testament, the sacrament of baptism. In the Old Testament, Moses frees the Israelites from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. In the New Testament, Christ frees us from the bondage of sin and death and pain. Has Father Brian gone over the Passover yet, the Eucharist? I don't think he has, right? Um, Is this making sense, though? It's called typology. It's kind of a big word. You want to know something that's really exciting, by the way, speaking of all this? This is a shout-out to all of you evangelical Protestants. This is a huge shout-out. Because... um, and again, this is just a big aside, but the impact that evangelical Protestantism has had actually on the Catholic faith when it comes to Bible-believing Christians who through their individual studies of Scripture in the Bible for various different reasons are convinced that there's something to be found in the Catholic Church that is, that is a, kind of a, a more full expression of the Christian faith and what they knew. And so they become Catholic. And then some of the thinkers become scholars and then they'll write books and then conferences start. Uh, It's having a massive influence on the Catholic church in today's world. And it's a really cool thing, especially in the area of scripture scholarship. Because the last 40 to 50 years in the Catholic world, catechesis and teaching and doctrine has, there's been some high points, but mostly it's been a complete wasteland since around the 1950s uh, of teaching. But before that, Catholic teaching and dogma and scripture, uh, it, it, was, it was rich, it was kind of full-bodied. And it was very scriptural, it was very biblical, it was very biblically based. The last 50 years, more or less, has gotten into the God loves you line, which, you know what, that's true. But if that's the only thing you hear, it's, it's going to become sentimental. It's not going to work well. And the shout out to you evangelical Protestants is that the rich script scholarship that's, that is available in that tradition, uh, uh, through people that have decided to become Catholic, is really kind of developing and carrying on great biblical scholarship from a Catholic point of view. So that's just really cool. Um, okay, so where were we? So this is all typology. So this guy, uh, one of the guys, of course, Scott Hahn. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Scott Hahn. He's like big Catholic celebrity guy. He, you know what he did? He's like well-known for typology and covenant and all these rich scriptural things. He'd be the first one to tell you, it's not him. This is, the, this is simply the Catholic faith. And uh, especially guys in the early 20th century, like Jean Cardinal Daniel Lou, Louis Bouillet, 
were writing Scott Hahn's stuff, but Hahn just popularized it. I mean, he'll be the first one to tell you that. The cool thing is that this is the Catholic faith itself. Um, it's rich and it's biblical. So this is the typology. Uh, the story of salvation is the story of everything God has done to bring his people back into union with him. Um, Moses, like we said, is drawn from the waters of the Nile as an infant. As he, he, uh, and he draws Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea. Uh, this is a type of baptism. And then Ezekiel, when, when the, the Jews are looking forward to the new covenant, Ezekiel says in chapter 36, quote, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. So there's all of this um, imagery of water in the Old Testament pointing forward. So let's kind of arrive on the scene of the, the New Testament here. What is the scripture? Oh, let me, let me back up a bit. Uh, Father Brian has not defined what a sacrament is yet, correct? He hasn't really covered sacraments too much. So do I have any volunteers who, who would like to define what a sacrament is? Go ahead. It's an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. Very good. Very good. What's this now? <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, Very cool. cool. <laughs> this was it yours? Yeah. No one else got that right. So yeah, a sacrament, the way the Council of Trent defines it is a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So every single sacrament, and there's seven sacraments in the Catholic faith, is going to have its institution narrative by Christ somewhere. The Eucharist is easy. Um, several are very clear. Baptism is actually kind of interesting because you're like, well, Christ never baptized anyone. So the, the narrative uh, from Scripture that we have of Christ when he instituted baptism was actually his own baptism, uh, which is when the Spirit came upon him and out of the, the clouds, you know, it says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So Christ himself is baptized. Um, and then from then on, uh, the sacrament of baptism is going to be a visible action with invisible power. I want to kind of um, underscore the sacramental uh, terminology just, just again. So, and this is kind of interesting because it gets practical. And for you cradle Catholics, you, you, I doubt you're going to know this either. So a sacrament, again, it's a visible sign that is instituted by Christ to give grace. This is one of the things I love about being Catholic. Catholics are at home with stuff in the world. Stuff matters. Water, uh, bread, wine, oil. All of these things are used in, in worship, in our relationship with God, because the Catholic faith from, from its very beginning is going to say that our relationship with the created world, it's not to be a relationship of negation, like, oh, I need to actually uh, suppress this in my life. I need to get away from visible things. 
even creature comforts. I just need to get away, and I need to focus on God. That, that actually isn't the Catholic approach. The Catholic approach is, I need to have an ordered experience of these things in my life for the full praise and glory of God and worship of God and adoration. You know, it just makes sense. The Catholic faith is the faith of both and. Talk about this with my friends all the time. It's faith and reason. It's scripture and tradition. It's spirit and matter. It's authority and spontaneity. I mean, basically anything you can think of, that's what the Catholic faith is. That's why it's been around for 2,000 years. You can't survive if you don't have uh, kind of a solid philosophy and uh, theology. Um, and so a sacrament is the greatest example we have of visible creation kind of being on our side. The simplest way to say this would be that stuff matters. As a Catholic, stuff matters. Incidentally, that's why Catholics like are, are kind of classically at home with things like, like think of Italy, okay? That's a very Catholic country. Or Bavaria, or Ireland, my ancestral home. God bless those people. Um, and what is it known for? Good food. Not Ireland, but, you know, food. Well, yeah, sometimes you can find good stuff. Yeah. So, but like Catholics are at home, and, and I'm really using this as an example to back up sacraments. And Father Brian's incredible at getting into this too, but Catholics are all about the good things of creation. Uh, food, drink, love, romance, festivity. I mean, that's, that's a very Catholic approach. If you love those things, you're at home in the Catholic faith. Because it's not a negation or a suppression, it's about an ordering. And we tend to be happier and more peaceful when we do have things ordered. Um, so the sacraments are experiences of this. But every sacrament is composed of two basic elements. Form and then matter. This is all uh, hammered out, by the way, at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. after the Protestant Reformation. Because the Catholic, the, the, the Catholic faith was getting too kind of superstitious. Really was. And that whole selling indulgences thing and a corrupt bishop class and hierarchy was very much a part of the situation. And we constantly need reform in the church. And we actually need it now, arguably even more than we did in the Reformation, if you've seen the news lately. That's why I love working for Father Brian, because he's a real priest. Um, sacraments made of form and matter. So the form is, think of it as the, the wording or the formula of the sacrament. So for baptism, it's the Trinitarian formula or immersion. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the matter is water. Um, the Eucharist, the matter is bread, unleavened bread and wine, and the form is, um, don't quote me on this, but it's, uh, it's obviously the prayer of consecration. Take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body, which will be given up for you. The form of confession is interesting. So what, what's, what's the form and matter of confession? Well, the matter is the person, the penitent, and, and actually 
the contrition, confession of sins, and penance. What's the form, though? The form is when the priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's just really cool. So, if, by the way, if you don't hear that, it, it, it didn't take. So if you have a priest who's still living in the 1970s and is kind of doing a spontaneous Eucharistic prayer, maybe it's not the body and blood of Christ. Maybe it's just still bread. I taught high school in Southern California, a little town called Ojai, which was the, at a Catholic high school, although the town was the center of the New Age movement. And we had every kind of uh, visitor um, come through the halls of the high school and give different teachings at times, uh, which is actually really, really interesting. Um, but it was really cool because like a lot of times the students would say, well, like, um, is that really Catholic? Is that really Catholic? Because there's a lot of innovation happening. And one of the things about the Catholic faith that's interesting is um, there's kind of what I would call a disposition to conserve an ability to uh, renew or reform, both together. Um, because you don't want to throw out what's bad, but when it is bad, you do, you do develop, of course. Um, but when it comes to the form and the matter, ever since the Council of Trent, um, um, it's been kind of hammered in stone what the form and the matter is for each sacrament. And, and that's what it is for baptism, is the, the Trinitarian formula. Raise your hand if you've been uh, baptized. Here's an interesting question. Um, and just think this to yourself. You don't need to raise your hand. Um, do you know if you were baptized with a formula that was not Trinitarian? So I baptize you in the name of Jesus. Or I baptize you in the name of the Holy Spirit. If that's, that's not a Trinitarian formula, um, and actually you'd want to be rebaptized because that was not the right form. So in that sense, it didn't take. Now from God's point of view, God's not a magician, so he knows your conscience. So from a spiritual point of view, that's fine, but you will want to get rebaptized. It's um, just kind of a side note. Um, when it comes to the, the rite itself, there are a few aspects to it. Um, you have the baptismal water, you have the profession of faith. Do you know that in the actual rite of baptism, there is, uh, there's an exorcism? or what's called a minor exorcism of prayer over the infant or over you as you're about to receive adult baptism. Um, which is really cool because when you go and you prepare to be baptized, the church as, as the mother is kind of holding you um, in her arms and wants to pray over you and for, for blessing and for protection. So that's cool that there's a minor reception there. Um, by the way, Lauren, is there a break halfway through? Okay. 7.20. Yeah, let's go ahead and have a break, and then we'll rendezvous. By the way, I don't go as long as Father Brian, so uh, hopefully that's a little bit of good news for you. So let's break, and then we'll reconvene.
Okay, I know I said that uh, Father Brian wasn't here, but he actually is. Uh, he has a special cameo. Uh, he's more of a celebrity than you've ever realized. He's actually on this video. And so, uh, kind of wanted to tease him because he's such a celebrity, but also uh, he makes a good point uh, with the, the importance of mission. When, whenever you're baptized, you have a sense of mission. And he communicates it kind of through a Hollywood voice for extra drama. So, uh, here you go. This comes from the series Reborn on form.org. It's a three-episode series. It's in, indeed all the community of faith. As Christians, everything we do flows from the grace and mission of our own baptism. Most of us are happy to embrace the grace part, but the mission is much harder. We don't always want that. If that's where our baptism is lived out in our everyday lives, the grace of baptism is an energy. It's an ability to do something. It entails a mission. With this sacrament, God has freed your baby from sin. Okay, there we are. That's actually it. Um, freed your baby from sin. And then uh, he says like five seconds more or something. But Lauren, can I get the lights? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Q, Q. <laughs> so this is form.org, which by the way, uh, father wanted me to do a plug for this. He, he said he's been meaning to do it and he, and he hasn't. Um, it's kind of like Catholic Netflix. Um, which I know sounds completely lame, but it's actually really good. Uh, form.org. So I want you to go to that, and then we as a parish bought a subscription for you all. So you, have, you can create a free account, and you want to use 7GH, this is the code, GTW. 7GH GTW. Use that as a free code. And then uh, there's all sorts of lectures, uh, video series, everything. My best friend from home, I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. He calls me up about six months ago and says, uh, I've got some news I want to share, want to drive out. I said, great. He said, I, so he came out, spent the weekend. He said, uh, I've decided to become Catholic. Um, completely unexpected. And uh, the first thing I did was share this with him. And now he's like a complete junkie. <laughs> and I wonder, I think, oh yeah, he had his son listen to the St. Patrick audio story. Um, pray for him. His name is Luke. And he's really excited, but he has his fears. He has his questions, probably where a decent amount of you are. So uh, pray for him. Um, okay, form.org, I can't, can't recommend that enough. And actually, it is like Netflix in the sense that for, for every maybe five things that are just kind of no good, there's one that's really good. And um, that's, that's one of them, Reborn. I'll shoot it to you straight. Yeah, yeah. We actually have, it's funny, some of our parishioners probably kill me for saying that because uh, we have quite a few of the people from Formed as parishioners here. And a lot of the presenters on Foreign to Prisoners, those are the good series. And uh, because it's, all this is filmed right here in Denver. It's out of Greenwood Village. And it's, I think they have one million viewers, subscribers throughout the world. So it's really cool. It's awesome. 
So during the break, what, what I realized, I, I only want to speak for maybe 10 to 15 more minutes and then wrap it up. Uh, my goal tonight, folks, is to present baptism as a story um, because that's exactly what it is. It's, it's a gateway into supernatural life and um, a couple other things that it's meant to be kind of your gateway into life in Christ. And I love Catholicism because there's so much cool stuff to talk about. And there's all sorts of big words, and you know, I know I've gone over that with the Sunday morning opening the word crowd. I call them big, blocky, heavy Catholic words. There's a lot of those, and you know, that's kind of cool, but sometimes that, uh, if, if I talk too much about that, then the simplicity of the faith is not portrayed enough. And especially as I'm beginning to wrap baptism up, I, I actually want to be simple when it comes to what it is. Uh, the first thing that baptism does is that it forgives sins. Um, unfortunately, though, a lot of times this is portrayed as that's only what it does. And actually, that's not true. It forgives our sins for the sake of something else. But it does forgive sins. So whenever... Uh, as an adult get baptized or the little infant is baptized with the Trinitarian formula, there is a washing away of sins. That's where the imagery and the the symbolism comes in. Uh, John the Baptist's baptism was a baptism of repentance, kind of a moral calling. But Jesus' baptism, the baptism of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is a literal forgiveness of sins. Here's one of the main differences between a Catholic understanding of sacrament and a Protestant understanding is that the, the sacraments are efficacious. They really do something. So we believe that the Eucharist isn't, when the, when the priest says the prayer of consecration over the bread and wine, it doesn't just remain a symbol and somehow spiritually we're caught up into the presence of Jesus. No, it, that bread and wine becomes the body and blood, soul and divinity of Christ. Now, incidentally, if that's a bit of a trial of faith, like really, that sounds crazy. Well, join the club. Because the appearances remain, or what Thomas Aquinas calls the, the accidents remain, but the substance changes. But it's beyond our sight. Um, baptism literally forgives your sins. So... If you're preparing for first confession, this is where jealousy starts in RCIA in a good way. Why? Because for those of you who are baptized, there's no preparation for your first confession because you're going to walk up to that font and Christ, excuse me, Father Brian, Father Brian <laughs> whoa. <laughs> so Father Brian will, will baptize you and the Holy Spirit will come into you and everything will be forgiven because the grace alone saves you and saves me. Our works don't save us at all. Now, we do need faith and works in order to follow Christ in his love, but literally speaking, the grace of Christ in me is what saves me. Um, 
And that's really cool. Whereas if you are not getting baptized, you've already been baptized, well, you need to do the chore of uh, first confession prep. By the way, if you are doing that and you want a bit of a mentor or someone to chat with, a layperson to walk through some things, guy or girl, if you're a, I mean, I'll, if you're a guy, I'm, I'm happy to help. If, if you're a gal, a couple of my friends would be happy to help. I realize in my job that you can kind of never have enough mentors for the sacrament of confession. Uh, I'm sorry? Yeah. Thank you very much for that. So your name again? Casey. Casey said that makes me really nervous. And you know what? That's right. Uh, if you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to give my first confession either ever or in a long time, and I'm really nervous, you're normal. That's what it means. You're very, very normal. Um, so if you have never been baptized, you get a free pass. But then you'll have to go to confession probably after, unless you become a living saint, which that'd be awesome. <laughs> but uh, incidentally, confession is, the church refers to confession as a second baptism. Now that's only an imagery. That's not reality. Because you can only be baptized once. Nate? Well, I was going to say, why does the Catholic faith believe in one baptism, baptism for the forgiveness of sins? Mm -hmm. And then why is there... Good question. So why does the church believe in the baptism we say in the creed every Sunday for the forgiveness of sins? Why do we need confession? Well, because typically we will stumble on our path. And St. Paul talks about in the New Testament um, that when we sin, some sin are, are mortal. They, they're so grave that they bring death. Um, and so the church understood that Christ gave the church the ministry of reconciliation, which became known as confession, so that it's kind of uh, the grace of God is one, right? And, and it's always available. And so when you're baptized, the grace comes to dwell inside you. But sometimes we can make decisions in our life that are so grave against the will of God and the law of God that, that the church has understood it's kind of like we turn our backs against the grace and cut the grace off. And so that's why confession is there. Go ahead. Can we just bow our heads and pray to God and ask for forgiveness from God? Or is it better to go to a priest? Good question. So Father, we'll get into more of this in detail. Can we just pray alone personally for forgiveness or do we need confession? Um... From a Catholic point of view, you can always pray alone, and God will hear you. That will actually begin the forgiveness process, absolutely. But we do, if it's a grave sin, we, we understand that the church gave the sacrament of confession to, to absolve us of that grave sin. I was actually just chatting about this last night with a group of friends. I actually want to stay away from that so I can finish baptism. But um, we do believe as Catholics that for those in a state of mortal sin or big heavy sin, that confession is, is needed. Uh, now the questions come up, what if I'm on a stranded island or this or that or the other thing, or I'm like, uh, I don't know, dying and there's no priest. Well, this is something the Catholics don't know, so listen up. This is really good that Council of Trent states that the process of justification begins when you have perfect contrition. 
which is not based on emotion. Perfect contrition is when you say, it's like a son going to the father saying, dad, I'm sorry because I've offended you, dad, rather than I don't want to get in trouble. That's imperfect contrition. Perfect contrition is primarily, even I feel like I don't feel right now, but primarily, Lord, I'm sorry for having offended you. That takes the place of confession if confession's not available. But if confession is available, do both. Your experience of confession begins. Let's say I just embezzled $20,000 from good old Our Lady of Lords, God forbid. You know, the embezzling happens. And I'm like, oh, John, you shouldn't embezzle. You work for a church. And, and, I, and I, the, the, the process of confession, it's not, it doesn't start when I get in the confessional. I mean, it begins when I'm on my knees, Lord, I'm your son, I'm your daughter, and what I did was wrong, or, or any number of sins, right? Uh, a lot of Catholics think that they are kind of under the wrath of God until confession, and actually that's not right, folks. Justif- the grace of justification begins when that, act, that perfect act of contrition is made and confession is a part of that process. You still need to go to confession. See the difference there? Go baptism. ahead. Baptism. Yeah, baptism. baptism. Yes. My 30 years journey of getting mm-hmm. to Catholicism, mm-hmm. I was extremely bummed out when I found out that I can't be rebaptized. Mm-hmm. Because I, I was present at my baptism. I don't know a thing about it. Right. I'm sure I have a baptismal certificate. It doesn't answer, I'm sure, the question you brought up about the Trinity, right? Mm-hmm. But why can you not be rebaptized? I'm a new person. I'm a new... Right. That's great. It was a bit of a symbolism there. Yeah. And when Father told me, he goes, now we can't do a new baptism, <laughs> I like, that's kind of deflated. That's right. That's good. So I, I hear this a lot, actually. Like the, the, the symbolism of being rebaptized is beautiful. So why can't we do that as Catholics? It's a great segue into the second point. You have a new identity. So when you were baptized years ago as a child, you know, 20 years ago, like the, you imprinted on your soul is what the church calls an indelible mark. Now, but this is beautiful because you're, and I, and I had to square this right before class with a theologian from, uh, the Augustine Institute, actually, just to make sure I was getting the terminology down. The indelible mark through baptism, it changes your soul. And it adopt, God is adopting you as one of his sons or daughters at that point. My sister is going through a journey right now where she's trying to adopt a 10-year-old boy. who's wonderful, great boy, Terrible family background. He knows that the love of her, even though he's adopted, is the same as biology. Maybe it's more. Grant knows. Spiritually speaking, we are all adopted into his eternal loving family through baptism the indelible mark. But that means indelible mark can't change, doesn't go away. So we can leave, but the mark remains. The, the other analogy would be, let's say a son who was once part of the family leaves, goes away for many, many years. Or are they going to get a new dad? Are they going to have 
They're going to do, you know, uh, like a new family. No, they'll be welcomed back. But this is actually where confession comes in. Because when you have your first confession, I would imagine in a while, and a lot of you, I can promise you it will feel like a second baptism. I can absolutely promise that. It actually feels like that every time I go to confession. Uh, I'm 37 and I've gone through many trials of faith. I stand before you as a man whose faith is never more certain. Confession is one of those reasons. I, I just love it. Um, I really do. My, it's like my humanity loves it. So that indelible mark, before I get to your question, that's the second thing is that you have a new identity, folks. And you know what? I don't want this to be abstract. I hope you go home and you pray with this. Christ says at the end of Matthew, this is the last thing he says to his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. All of these signs and symbols and rituals and, and family rituals, I could call them, they're, they're meant to enhance and build up one thing and one thing alone, and that's membership in the family. That is membership in the communion of Christ himself. Question. This is kind of a follow-up. Sure. Can you speak on how the church, does the church make a differentiation between an infant baptism without, you know, the infant, the baptism of that person is not of their own cognizance. Right. An adult baptism, which is of their own cognizance. Does the church have a take or an ex- <clears throat> Yeah, so great question on child baptism. And this is a big difference between Catholics and Protestants, especially evangelical Protestants. You're going to have a very hard time with the whole notion of uh, infant baptism. Infant dedication is okay, but infant baptism is difficult. And the simple answer is from the earliest days of the church, and this comes out of Paul, and I'm forgetting the letter in the New Testament, but it talks about so-and-so and his entire household were baptized. It's almost like the early church wasn't thinking in the distinctions we think of now of like child, um, let's say it like this. They thought in terms of family and covenant, the early church did, not as much of like, well, does, not, as, not as much in terms of like rights. So the, the early church was like, well, as parents, we give our children food, clothing, comfort, love. And this is the greatest gift we can give our child, baptism. So it's just going to all be one thing. The church is very unconscious, if you will. I would, I would ask you to look up just child baptism in Catholic faith. What I chew on is, yeah. you know, there's such an emphasis in Catholicism of free will. Right. right? And so, let me first preface this, I'm a single male of kids. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and, and something I was just curious if the Catholic Church has a take on it. Like, I'm like, wait, why don't you decide when you can speak to me? Or instead of like, okay, one dribble, one drool. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one cry, no. Well, it's interesting because the church is big on, like, for instance, uh, communion, holy communion in the, the Roman rite. That is, we only give communion to children once they've reached the age of reason. Yeah, so why? So this is just maybe. Right. Yep. Why then, if there's not that distinguishment, 
distinguish the difference between an infant baptism and uh, someone of their own kind? No, it's a good question. And it actually is one of those questions that there's not kind of an irreducible principle on it of like, like the Eucharist. I think actually is going to have more of an irreducible scripture philosophy like, I see why we can understand this is not a symbol. This is the real presence. Baptizing infants, there's not as much of like that kind of power evidence. It's just more of the church has started doing this from the earliest times, especially apostolic times. And so whenever Jesus' apostles did stuff, like celebrate the Eucharist, baptize infants, they just kept doing it. Um, And also the notion of freedom. So you're not going to ask a child, do you want food? Do you want friendship at three or four? You're just going to do it for them. And the church is kind of very unconscious like this. The the faith, if we believe that this is the greatest experience of freedom and truth and life, we're going to just go ahead and give this to the child. And we know that at eight or ten years old, the child might reject it. Yeah. Sure. Well, whenever you've... Yep, that's right. And it could be the church speaking out of both sides of the mouth in the sense of, uh, as an adult, you do have to give free will to be baptized. So, but as an infant, you don't. So that's a little bit of like, take that. <laughs> a little bit of mystery. But, but I think there are some really good answers, though. There are some good scriptures and some good philosophical reasons, but just Google it, because uh, I want to get to this last point. <laughs> Kind of like, yeah, please tell Father I said that, by the way. <clears throat> I, I do want to wrap this up. Um, hold your questions till the end or come up and talk to me uh, personally because I, I do want to get to this last point. The most important thing here, folks, is supernatural life. Um, and this is a big Catholic thing as well. Um, baptism welcomes us into the family. It gives us a new identity as a son or a daughter of God as an adopted son or daughter of the living God, and it gives you a new life. But here's the interesting thing about this whole mystery of supernatural life. Um, Because you're like, well, John, you tell me that the the baptized receive supernatural life, but I met a lot of Catholics who are not displaying supernatural life. And you say, well, fair enough. Well, you know what? That's where faith comes in. The supernatural life needs to be tapped. But when you are baptized as an infant or as an adult, you receive the indwelling spirit. Indwelling spirit. And and along with that indelible mark, that won't won't leave. Um, And uh, Paul talks about this all the time, but we need to have lens to read it. What, what does he mean by supernatural life? It means that on your journey be, into becoming more Catholic, um, and there are non-Catholic Christians, of course, who experience deep supernatural life in the Holy Spirit. It, it's kind of... Um, it's your own personal experience that um, 
Christ brings something new into my life. That's, that's what conversion is all about. There's natural life, natural day-to-day life, living, thinking, breathing, loving, yes. But you know what? Then you had the St. John Paul II. And then you have, the, you know the way Father Brian can give a homily? And you just think, how does he do that? That, folks, is not, it's not merely natural. It's super, or it literally means above. It's above. It's not uh, in opposition to natural life. It's more life. That's a, it's actually the life of heaven. Supernatural life is the beginning of life in, of heaven right now on earth. And whenever you've met a Christian who is of the kind, they they're likely have a pretty deep prayer life, uh, it's likely that their faith has been tested. And there's just something different about this person. And it's not reducible to sentiment or emotion or anything. There's something there that you want, that you admire. That is supernatural life. The lives of the saints are icons of supernatural life. That's why Mother Teresa, you know, the missionaries of charity, her sisters, her her sisters, we have a a convent here in Denver, Missionaries of Charity. They're the most joyful, happy, loving women you'll ever meet. But they're poor. They eat by principle. Mother Teresa started this. They eat the same kind of food that the poor that they're serving eat. Their entire mission is to serve the poorest of the poor. Natural man doesn't understand this. Natural good man. Like what St. Paul says, natural man. is like things like forgiveness, things like mercy, that is, that is of a, natu- a supernatural morality. <clears throat> and the, for, the, for you philosophy buffs in here, I want you to look up this one guy, Dietrich von Hildebrand. Father Brian would, would recommend this guy too. Dietrich von Hildebrand, <clears throat> the reason why he became Catholic is because of this, this mystery of supernatural life as evidenced in the lives of the saints. He's a phenomenologist from the Munich school. And that's why he became Catholic. Now he went on to fight the Third Reich. He was, he was on Hitler's hit list.